0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ranger Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Now, who wants a new prime minister for Christmas? What? Easy, easy. Settle down,
0: please. <laughs> Here, Scott Thompson. <laughs> Where did that come from? It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what's going on on the planet? A new AFN uh, chief has uh, been declared. Cindy Woodhouse is the new uh, chief. And uh, when asked about carbon tax, she said, we want to carve out two like Atlantic Canada. So there you go. Uh, With that, Ottawa outlines its oil and gas emission cap system. Um, Does anybody know how carbon tax works? Nobody, like, who, who knows? And I think we're, I don't think we're supposed to know. We're just supposed to be confused as if we've been spun around three times and asked to go pin a tail on something. Um, so, uh, and, and yeah, and, cl- you know, clearly the carbon tax as for the parliamentary budget officer is not making difference. It's more of a revenue generator, uh, than anything. So where does the, uh, the oil and gas emission cap go? Who knows? Don't understand. We'll try to help you figure it out uh, as time goes on. Also, uh, the conservatives are doing their best just being big bullies, big uh, prickly people, you know, just not being nice at all. Because they're trying to uh, delay the Christmas vacation of parliamentarians by uh, begging for uh, uh, relief for the farmers from the carbon tax, just as you know, First Nations are asking for, and pretty much uh, the rest of Canada uh, looking for a break, certainly on home heating fuel over the course of the winter. Uh, and they're they're going to introduce oh a whole pile of bills and and such and stuff, and just trying to uh, just clog everything up. To which Katrina Gould uh, called that uh, U.S. Right wing, extreme right wing politics, uh, comparing any chance that they have to, uh, Donald Trump and the whole, <laughs> whole thing going on down there. So anyway, that's, that's what it looks like is that, uh, it looks like, uh, Pierre Polyev is going to try to hold up, uh, hold up, uh, them going out on their, uh, Christmas vacation with all sorts of stuff until he gets some relief on, uh, the carbon tax. Now let me ask you this. Do you care? No, not about the carbon tax. I'm sure you'd all uh, want relief there. But do you care that uh, the politicians are going to be up uh, all night debating useless, frivolous things uh, instead of going on their vacation? Uh, No, I don't either. So have at it, kids, because that's what you are, a bunch of kids playing on the extremes while the rest of us free. So uh, you know, I don't think anybody is going to lose any sleep other than the politicians about losing sleep. So, um, you know, and and again, um, if this is all the opposition can do uh, to get the attention of our illustrious leadership and somehow uh, helping us through these tough times, uh, then you have at it. You, you enjoy You have a great time. All right. And the rest of us will be working away, trying to keep a roof over our head. All right. uh, Another big show coming up. We're going to talk to Robert Thompson. Uh, We were talking about yesterday the death of uh, Norman Lear. I want to get his take on it as well from the Blair Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. Uh, But, you know, it's, it's interesting how much influence he really did have over television for a long period of time. We'll talk about that. And would any of that stuff fly now? in the world that we live in. Also, uh, Bonnie Crombie, uh, as we talked about yesterday, the new leader of the liberal party provincially, where does that leave everybody else? As uh, the games begin, we'll bring Peter Grafe in on that. And also, uh, the executive director of the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame is going to be uh, joining us, Eugene Levy, Martin Short, among uh, a whole pile of people that are inducted, will be inducted into the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame in February. We'll talk about that, what it means, uh, what it means to the city as well. Uh, in regard to the event itself. All right. A new report from uh, the Montreal Economic Institute shows that uh, Canadians are paying far more for air travel than other nations. And it is because of. No, not fuel prices. Tax. Because of taxes, and here we go again, you know, uh, the price of homes, taxes to that, uh, the price of travel, taxes to that, the price of heating your home or driving your vehicle, taxes to that, uh, which is something we've been saying for a long time. And again, after pretty much uh, maxing out the credit card, Canadians are asking, what are we getting for the buck? Uh And I'm sure the discussion will continue. Here's another fascinating thing that's going on. The COP28 climate talks, the COP28 climate talks are going on in uh, Dubai. And there's all sorts of uh, lobbying going on and such. But it's fascinating because um, uh, the Alberta Premier is there trying to sell uh, I guess, Alberta Energy and and what they are doing uh, with carbon capture and such. So it's got an, an, an interesting take this year. We're going to talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. And in the U.S., well, Liz Cheney, yeah. Uh, former Vice President Cheney's daughter, will she make a run at the White House? We'll talk about that all coming up. Busy Day. All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Good Times, One Day at a Time. Sanford and Son, Maud, The Facts of Life, One Day at a Time. I think it's easier to add or talk about the shows that uh that Norman Lear was not involved in. Uh because it seemed during this period he was all over everything to do with television. Uh screenwriter, producer Norman Lear, and the man behind those shows passing away a few days ago at the age of 101. Let's bring in Robert Thompson, trustee, professor, television, radio, film, director of the Blyer Center for TV and Pop Culture at Syracuse University and here now. Robert, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
2: I am. Hope you are, too.
0: You know, it's it's not odd to say, Robert, he had his hands on pretty much everything of that decade. He was all over the place.
2: Yeah, well, he I mean, there is certainly the American television before Norman Lear, especially before All in the Family, and then afterwards. Uh, uh, He is by far the most influential person in entertainment, not news and all that, but in entertainment television in the uh, entire history of the the medium uh, down here. And by the time he did All in the Family, he'd been around the block a few times. He'd been writing for old live television, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Uh, he flew around in a B-17 during the Second World War. Uh, he was already a seasoned guy, but all in the family, completely changed TV by finally convincing network executives that you could tell stories about what was going on on the news at 11, and you could do it during primetime. Uh, you know, throughout the 60s, we had Mr. Ed the Talking Horse, Flying Nun, the <laughs> Flying Nun. Um <laughs> My Mother the Car, Bewitched, I Dream of genie. all of these things that uh, uh, looked like they were happening in the real world, but they mm. didn't mention anything that was actually going on in the 60s, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, uh, uh, civil rights, the women's, modern women's movement, all of this uh, kind of stuff. All in the Family comes around, hits every one of those things and a lot more and gets five years in a row, number one, doing it that had never been done before. And therefore, network executives think, aha, maybe putting the real world on television is not only something people will watch, but they'll watch more than anything else. And all bets were off after that.
0: And I'm not sure if people today realize just how controversial this show was when it came out.
2: Well, you know, surprisingly, uh, I'm surprised it wasn't more. Uh, They did put a warning uh, label at the beginning of the first episode and Hmm. maybe a couple more, but it didn't uh, uh, last very long. But even though it did uh, break all kinds of barriers, including quite a bit of swearing, and there had been very little of that on television uh, before that, and it dealt with all kinds of controversial topics, for the most part, the American, the American audience embraced uh, this show. There were a few other things Norman Lear uh, would do, or Norman Lear Shores shows would do later on uh, that had some advertiser boycotts and uh, that kind of thing. But uh, given what a radical departure All in the Family was, uh, it's kind of amazing how quickly it slipped into the American consciousness. Uh, and in that sense, I think demonstrated that audiences were... Uh, had an appetite for this kind of thing. And it was the executives who thought we wouldn't want to watch it. Uh, how
0: did he walk the fine line on shows like All in the Family?
2: Well, I mean, part of it was he did all of this new content uh, that hadn't been done before in a really, really familiar setting. Hmm. The living room. How long have sitcoms been in the living uh, living room? I mean, that's what sitcoms are. It's us in our living rooms watching somebody else in theirs. That not only goes back to the beginning of television, but it goes back to radio, uh, uh, network radio back in the day. So we were kind of comfortable with this setting that we'd seen from Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet and on and on and on. But then within that nuclear family living room, all this other weird stuff is going on. It was shot on videotape, so it had a much more contemporary news-like look to it. Uh, the language was different. The content was different. And like most families, they shouted at each other. That didn't happen much on television. Mm. Lucy and uh, and Ricky got into arguments, but they didn't scream at each other. Archie Bunker could scream at a drop of a hat. Uh,
0: is there shows like, uh, are there shows like this on TV would, uh, nowadays? Would this work on TV today?
2: Well, not only would it work, it actually did work. Uh, Norman Lear, right before COVID, got together with Jimmy Kimmel, and they decided to take a bunch of his yeah. old 70s shows, including All in the Family and Good Times and The Jeffersons and One Day at a Time, and they took scripts and had new contemporary actors uh, uh, playing the the roles that the old uh, actors did. They did an All in the Family episode. This would have been 2020, 2019. Um, Uh, with Woody Harrelson as Archie Bunker and Marissa Tomei as Edith, uh, which was, I think, really interesting uh, casting. So it did work. They actually remade it to some extent. He uh, uh, was the executive producer, Norman Lear was, of One Day at a Time, the reboot on the streaming, uh, uh, during the streaming era. And I think one of the best streaming shows uh, to come out uh, since streaming started. So, uh, yeah, I mean... uh, the ground that he broke in content and the uh, the what he cleared for others to do happens all over the place now. Abbott Elementary is very much in the Norman Lear uh, mold, and of course, it's one of the few big hits left on network television.
0: It's interesting when we talk, uh, uh, especially to a younger generation today, and my goodness, the world's coming to an end. We have this, we have that, we have whatever. And I remember thinking to myself, this is exactly what All in the Family was back in the 70s. They were this family yeah. arguing and concerned about the exact same things people are, are concerned about today.
2: You know, you so hit, hit on it. I mean, Archie and Edith sing. In the beginning, you played a portion of the song, uh, and it's about a guy, a bigot, yes, uh, uh, but it's about a guy who is just thinking the world is coming to an end and he's dreaming of the days of everything he names in that Glenn Miller, a mm-hmm. world war two, uh, 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 musician, uh, the hit parade, an old fifties radio show talks about his LaSalle. Those automobiles hadn't been made. He dreams of not only before the sixties, but before Roosevelt, uh, yeah. <laughs> Mr. We could use a man, a guy like Herbert Hoover, again, he dreams about before welfare when girls were girls and men were men. It was all about an aging guy who just thought the entire world was coming to an end because it was changing. And then in comes his son-in-law to represent all that change. And that was the fireworks that ran that show from 1971 to 1978.
0: Robert Thompson with us, trustee professor, television, radio, film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture, Syracuse University, talking about... Uh, Norman Lear, and specifically All in the Family and how groundbreaking it was. Robert, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
2: You too. Thanks very much.
0: All right. We were talking uh, earlier on in the week. Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga, or soon to be former mayor of Mississauga, is uh, has won the leadership for the provincial Liberal Party, and uh, so now somebody is uh, a permanent leader there. Although still has some work to do as far as getting a seat and such. What does it mean moving forward? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's here now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
3: I am, thanks. Hope you're well too.
0: Uh, thank you, Peter. So far, so good. Your take on uh, Bonnie Crombie winning the leadership. Uh, some are talking about how it took three ballots, but I remember way back when there were the two candidates that were opposing her were actually working together to go against her. Is that what this is here?
3: Uh, I think it probably uh, is more that uh, Bonnie Crombie had been able to sign up a large number of members as part of the leadership race, but. Uh, You know, given that you had to actually bring them to a physical voting place, she had some difficulty motivating them to that extent. And so with a really low turnout, uh, it was much harder for her to turn those new members into votes uh, in the election. I think that's probably why it took longer than we were anticipating.
0: Why a low turnout, considering she is a pretty prominent candidate? Very, uh, a lot of notoriety there.
3: Well, you know, I. You're asking people to, I guess, on a weekend to, to leave their house mm. and go to some place in their riding to go and cast a vote. So in a situation, I mean, it does raise a question a bit of, you know, what was the nature of these new members who were, were signed up and to what extent did they actually know that they had been signed up to the Liberal Party? Uh, as we know, these, these uh, leadership races, sometimes uh, people get a bit overzealous and people are only half aware that they've become members of a political party. Uh, you know, and that probably works if you just have to, you know, go online and click a box on the day, you might be uh, enticed to do that. But to get them to go out and vote is a, it's a much harder issue and maybe it raises a question about uh, how many of these new members are really going to be sticking around to help build a Liberal Party, which is, you know, much weakened compared to its time uh, when it held power between 2003 and 2018, the relatively low membership and some difficulty raising money.
0: Your take on the new leader will and do you think she will bring the party more to left of center?
3: Uh, I think if anything, she's likely to bring the party a bit more uh, to right of center. Uh, I think everything uh, <laughs> from how she positioned herself in the leadership race to her own you know political trajectory shows that she's comfortable trying to uh, win swing liberal uh, conservative voters. Unlike Kathleen Wynne and somewhat implausibly to De, Stephen Del Duca, who seemed much more, you know, keen to try and outflank the NDP on the left and and produce, uh, if you like, to try and rally, you know, the entire anti-conservative vote. Uh, I think Bonnie Crombie says the way to win isn't actually to try and do that, but in fact to look like you can beat the Conservatives, and at that point you will win and and consolidate that vote. And the way to show you can beat the Conservatives is really to take it to them in their strongholds particularly in the suburbs of Toronto, by, uh, you know, being much more uh, emphasizing economic policy and uh, budgetary balance.
0: Will the party support that, do you think? Is perhaps that the reason it's been suggested why it did take the third ballot? There were some more left than others.
3: Well, I mean, I think it is, you know, uh, positioning the party in a different place and it's been, at least rhetorically. Uh, and so, yeah, the people who've stuck around for the Liberal Party have probably been comfortable campaigning in a different position. I mean, they're, they're Kathleen Wynne the Liberals much more than Dalton McGuinty Liberals, if you like. And uh, uh, Bonnie Crombie's challenge is to try and find the people who uh, you know, are a bit more of the Dalton, Dalton McGuinty vision of having a Liberal Party running much more around questions of uh, economic development than around uh, social policy and redistribution.
0: Do Doug Ford and her have more in common than we realize?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, Doug Ford seems to have, you know, strange uh, things in common with all kinds of people all over the place, and that he's, he's not necessarily always that ideologically consistent. But I think fundamentally, uh, we do have two leaders who have their eye on winning uh, winning the suburbs of Toronto and have a pretty similar idea of what it takes to get that done. Uh, in terms of emphasizing, you know, a relatively uh, frugal government that doesn't raise taxes. Uh, You know, I think where they differ is uh, Bonnie Crombie thinks that you can sell a bit more in terms of, you know, investing uh, in human capital and the need to make certain investments uh, that are going to support growth, whereas uh, Ford, uh, Doug Ford is a bit more willing to fall back on the idea that we should just let uh, markets, you know, make most of these decisions. So, there's a bit of division between them, but at the end of the day, uh, there's not like a huge difference. I mean, much like Dalton McGinty got elected by saying he was going to follow uh, Mike Harris's taxation policy, you know, what was in that last budget of the, the Harris Eves government. Uh, one could imagine Bonnie Crombie making sort of similar promises in terms of whatever uh, budget uh, Doug Ford brings forward in uh, uh, 2025.
0: What are Bonnie Crombie's biggest challenges moving forward?
3: Uh, I mean, I think uh, experience will be one. I mean, she's someone who is presented as this kind of saviour for the Liberal Party, but has not, you know, had a single day in provincial politics before she was elected, and uh, whose experience even in electoral politics was limited to a, uh, a brief term uh, federally. Um, so I don't think she's necessarily been tested in the adversarial context. We saw during the campaign some, uh, you know, uh, somewhat discomfort uh, in terms of dealing with the kinds of critiques she was likely to get, and even decisions to stay on, for instance, as mayor of Mississauga through a budget process, and with all the sort of forms of conflict of interest that that involves being level leader at the same time as being mayor of, of Mississauga. You know, she seems willing to continue with that. So there's a way in which uh, one would think her instincts are maybe not great at this stage. And so the question will be how quickly she moves up the learning curve in terms of how to be an effective provincial politician dealing with a much more adversarial context.
0: Where does this leave the NDP, Peter, who are obviously the official opposition?
3: Well, I think it's a really dangerous position for them at the moment, uh, because I think we saw in the last provincial election, over half of Ontarians wanted a change of government uh, but ultimately, they split, you know, 25% for the NDP, 25% for the Liberals. Um, and I think what what we're seeing, even with the first polls after Bonnie Crombie became leader, where the, the Liberals quite quickly narrowed the gap with the Conservatives, is that, you know, they're willing to rally to someone who looks like they can replace the government in place. So the danger for the NDP is you get something like you had when Dalton McGuinty was elected, or even when Jean Chrétien became Prime Minister or, or Justin Trudeau federally. In that uh, a lot of your own support, even in seats you hold, ends up going to the Liberals simply because voters are, are swinging that way and seeing that as the most effective way uh, of removing the government, even if, you know, at the level of those individual ridings, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, the NDP had a chance to become the next government or to be the, the party in waiting for it. Uh, I think it's much harder for them to present themselves that way uh, if the Liberals have a new leader. Uh, the question is, is Bonnie Crombie going to be able to build that confidence in Ontarians in the next few years, or will she be, you know, gaffe-prone or error-prone? And, and that would be the opening, I guess, for Merritt Stiles.
0: Uh, obviously, three strong leaders for all three parties now. What are you anticipating in the legislature?
3: Well, I mean, in the legislature the Liberals are not very strong. They lack party status. They don't even have a yeah. leader in the legislature and so mm. the extent that we focus on the legislature the NDP will be much better placed to be the party of the opposition and to to, you know, lead the uh, the framing of the news about uh, how people are holding the government to account. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure many Ontarians actually spend their time looking at the legislature and paying attention to those things and so Uh, You know, even around this whole question of the Greenbelt, which has been highly damaging to the Conservatives, it was much more what was coming out every day in the newspapers and in what the NDP was doing at the legislature that was moving the dial on that. So, you know, to the extent that uh, the debate is defined by the legislature, it's great for the NDP. Um, To the extent that it isn't, uh, you know, the Liberals, I think, uh, will probably continue to receive pretty considerable media coverage.
0: Peter Griff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. As you may have heard, the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame has announced its newest round of inductees including uh, Eugene Levy, Martin Short, Jim Carrey uh, all being announced by Ron James at the Hall of Fame's class of 2023 uh, inductee announcements at the Hamilton Convention Centre. It's part of a festival coming here in February and going to be here for a while it looks like. Let's bring in Tim Progosh is Executive Director of the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame and here now. Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
4: I'm really well, and you, and yourself? So far,
0: so good. Uh, Tim, tell us about the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame.
4: Well, uh, do you have a couple of days? No. <laughs> I, um, basically, it's uh it's a big festival. Hamilton uh, stepped up to the plate, offered us a three year deal to bring this festival here, grow it, look for a permanent home. We're very excited about it, um, and our our inductees and um, we're going to do a festival that's going to show every, every kind of comedy you can think of. Musical comedy, sketch comedy, improv, stand-up. It'll all be there in galas and small shows at clubs. Um, and uh, with names like Sean Majumder and uh, Ron James and uh, Eric Johnson and Scott Falconbridge And um, our bands, our house bands for two of the nights, Teenage Head and Blue Rodeo.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so tell uh, us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about this deal that you've got worked out with uh, Tourism Hamilton, how this all works.
4: Well, basically we are uh, destined to produce a a festival there and do the induction process live in front of uh, when the people come and get their trophies uh, as part of a big festival. Uh, This year we do the voting and the process takes about six to eight months. We have committees, we have a board, and then we do have members, and then we have the public and every, every step, uh, there's verifications and and uh, we look at them scrutinize who's on the list and then uh, the it's weighted industry members of course and the board and the nominating committee have 60 uh, percent of the final vote and the public has 40 percent of the final vote and we do it in three categories uh, we do it in the, the um, well, we do it in three categories the first category is legacy and that's for people who their body of their work happened more than 50 years ago. And then we have creators, and they're the people who create and are be, behind the scenes, in uh, not on stage necessarily. And then we have the performers.
0: And talk about this being in Hamilton over the next three years.
4: Well, Hamilton has really stepped up. We have a, a, a host committee there. We have Carmen's group on side. Hamilton Volkswagens giving us vehicles. We have um, the the first Ontario center levity comedy club, uh, and the, uh, the convention center. We're going to have exhibits. We have the great white North set. We have the, the fruit stand from letter and we have a big display <laughs> on the uh, hilarious house of Frightenstein because Hamilton's own Billy van, uh, is going to be inducted. Um, I'll just run this down for you, Scott in the creator, uh, the legacy category. We have Marie Dressler, uh, one of the the first Canadian ever to win Academy award uh, for her performance. And she was the first uh, woman in the uh, full length motion picture with Charlie Chaplin. Um, Then we have the happy gang, which entertained the troops and and all of Canada in world war two, II. million listeners, uh, a show, In Canada, between 1939 and 1957, that was their average. And as Ron James pointed out, I think Canada's population at that time was only 3 million people. So that's a pretty good uh, uh, ratio. And then the final one is Rose Ouellette, a Francophone entertainer who um, sold out shows in Quebec for 17 years and is a legend in Quebec. Then we have The Creators. Uh, Joe Baudelai, who was instrumental in uh, um, launching the careers of many comics through his show on CBC Comics and helped launch the Comedy Network, and Joanna Downey, who ran the first inclusive stand-up comedy club in Toronto, uh, Spirits it was called, and whether you were new to the business or an existing comic trying new material, it was always open, always friendly, and you'd Robin Williams would drop by to do a set Lewis black Patton Oswalt. So it was uh, a legendary place for the comedy community. Then we, then we have the uh, performers and the first ever performer creator inductee is Steve Smith from, uh, from Hamilton, the red green show, the mm-hmm. Smith and Smith and the comedy mill were all his creations. And, um, you know, he's he's quite a a legend, and I don't think anybody's walked into Canadian Tire and not thought of Steve Smith. <laughs> and then we have Jim Carrey, Eugene Levy, Martin Short, the cast of SCTV. They're all uh, being inducted uh, at the festival as well.
0: All right, and this is all happening uh, the weekend of uh, February 21st through the 24th. Where can we find out more? Website, Tim?
4: CanadianComedyHall.com, and uh, tickets will go on sale next week.
0: All right, CanadianComedyHall.com to find out more uh, as uh, the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame makes uh, some roots, sort of, in Hamilton. Tim Progosh with us, Executive Director, Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. Tim, thanks for the time.
4: Good luck. Thanks a lot, Scott, and uh, hope to see you at the show. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
5: delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's Talk 900
2: CHML.
0: Uh, everything has gone up in price. You certainly know that uh, affordability through the window. Uh, if you're lucky enough to travel, uh, as many people wanted to do after you know three years of being held up with a two to three years of being held up with a global pandemic, um, many people deciding they want to take those holidays that. they're They've been trying to take for the last couple of years. Notice that the prices have gone up and a new report from the Montreal Economic Institute shows Canadians are paying far more for air travel than other nations. And a lot of that has to do with taxes of every sort. Let's bring in Gabor Lukacs, president air passenger rights advocacy group. And here now Gabor, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So, how much? Or, first of all, how do our airline fares compare to other areas, other cities, other sorry, other countries and such?
6: Well, in Canada, we are uh, certainly paying more uh, than, say, our counterparts or, or U.S. Account- or European counterparts. But we need to ask ourselves very carefully where it is coming from and what is the economics behind it. And, uh, I read the study that you are referring to, and unfortunately, although uh, some of the bare facts may be correct. The Conclusions drawn from it uh, are are quite lacking in foundation in economics and in and in facts. Uh, there's no free lunch. The reason that uh, at least in part the tickets are cheaper in the U.S. The, the reasons pointed by this study is because in the U.S. some of the citizens' air travel is subsidized from the public purse. When uh, a security service or an airport is operating for less than the rent they, they pay in Canada for expense for a cost which is less than say the cat fees which are being charged security fees somebody has to pay for it and in the us it's coming from the public purse from taxpayers money that's not necessarily from the evil but it's not automatically good either it is a question of actual economic cost benefit study of how much extra uh, revenue um, in form of tax revenue it may bring if uh, we decide to subsidize some of their travel from taxpayers' money. And what do we have to give up for that? So all those who who jump on this specific study to argue that we should get rid of all those taxes uh, to make travel more affordable, I would pose to them the question, well what type of health services are, are you going to also uh, Cancel, scrap because the the tax savings uh, that that you incur as a passenger has to come from somewhere.
0: So, are you saying other airlines are, are subsidized or, or get more subsidization through the government, uh, i.e., the U.S.? It's n-
6: it's not the airlines themselves directly per se, but yes, it is the passengers. It is all these services that are attached to the to the operation of the of the mm-hmm. airline such as airport facilities, the security checks. Either there are only two possibilities. Either they are charging the full price to the passenger or the airline in some ways, which gets back to the passenger, or it is being subsidized directly or indirectly from taxpayers' money.
0: So are taxes, considering, are not too high on airline travel?
6: Uh, I'm not sure if they're too high or not. I, I What I am concerned particularly is that this study... So-called study that we are talking about is a populist uh, propaganda that is not properly supported by economic research and doesn't properly answer the question in a, in a scientific manner. Whether uh, these we lose hope top- from an economic perspective? Of course, from a, as a passenger, you want to pay as little taxes as possible. But would you still want to pay less tax on your tickets? It means that uh, you get less. Healthcare services when you get sick, or you have maybe less hospital.
0: So you're looking at this from less of a uh, an airline situation, uh, and more. and you're looking at this Gabor uh, from less of an uh, an airline situation and more of you know taxes are on everything, and if you want services, you're going to pay taxes for that.
6: That's right. The, the 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 way
0: I we're losing Gabor. Are you there, Gabor?
6: Through the lens of uh, economics. Through the lens of how it is going to, how you know, there's only one budget, only one mm-hmm. pot, and the question is how um, taking some money from one place is going to affect other needs.
0: Are Canadians getting value for their airline dollar?
6: That's a, that's a far better question. The Canadian airlines are providing quite poor service, uh, and they- we're
0: gonna lap. Uh I Gabor you're so, Gabor, unfortunately that, that, that's that's sorry keep going Gabor you keep cutting in and out so we're having a hard time let's try it one more time go ahead
6: Um so um unfortunately we're getting quite poor service as Canadians uh when it comes to
0: All right, we're out. Uh, Gabor Lukacs with us, president of Air Passenger Rights Advocacy uh, Group. Unfortunately, uh, we've lost uh, connection with Gabor, and uh, it it doesn't seem to be uh, working out for us this time. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A record number of fossil fuel lobbyists are at the COP28 climate talks, analysts say. Uh, and what does this say about where we are? Uh, let's bring in Carrie Bowman, professor with the School of Environment. Uh, let me start that again. Carrie Bowman, professor with the School of the Environment with the University of Toronto. And here now, Carrie. thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
7: Very well, indeed. Happy to be here.
0: Kerry, thanks for the time. You know, um, I think most Canadians, if not all, want to save the planet and and move forward towards, uh, you know, a greener planet and such. But it just seems that we are firing off in several di- uh, different directions with a lot of complicated programs that nobody knows whether are working or they're not working or what's going on. And, you know, I, w- I was fortunate enough to go uh, through Europe uh, several weeks ago, and I could not believe the amount of coal I saw coming in on barges, trucks, what have you, uh mm-hmm. in my time there. And you know, we hear a lot about oil and gas, oil and gas. We we rarely hear about the biggest polluter, which is coal. Rather than firing off in a bazillion different directions, Why don't we aim at getting the world off of coal and then go from there? Because it seems we're trying to get the world off of everything. And if we can't get them off of coal, how do you get them off of everything?
7: Yeah, no, and it's a fair question. And of all the fossil fuels, you know, many would agree with you that coal is the first place to go. Well, look, you know it's the same problem that we've got all over the world. Uh, you know, we don't have a global order, so things are very, very fractured, and the world's a very divided place at this point. So you know that's definitely one of the problems. But there's a lot of economies that feel they're in no position. they cannot compromise their economies. Um, therefore coal is what they have. I mean, and if you look at big economies like Australia, now Canada doesn't have a lot of coal, but you know, big economies like Australia certainly does. And China absolutely does. So here's where it gets complicated. You know, you look at China in a lot of ways, they're kind of, which surprises a lot of people, but they're kind of world leaders on green energy. They've done more than a lot of countries have. They have high technology. They're converting left, right and center. And they're expanding coal plants left, right, and yeah. everywhere else. So, you know, that is, is one of the great concerns, and they're feeling the impact very, very much. Um, their, their coal has increased. Last summer, they had extreme heat. They had drought. Uh, the Yangtze River, you know, fell in volume, so they had less hydroelectricity. Because of the heat waves, they were burning more coal for fuel. So we've got this incredible circular problem. But it's part of all the same problem. And, you know, we tend to look at these problems nationally. Like we're all fighting in Canada now with, you know, the news coming out about what we're going to do with with the CAP system, with our own system. But what we miss is the big picture that, you know, the Hmm. planet is the life support system. And look, from a business point of view and a practical point of view, when, when people in our country and other countries say, you've got to give us a chance. You know, we need fossil fuels to earn money from this to create alternatives. We're on track. We're using this. It sounds great. Here's the thing we don't have time for this. We, we're really, really against the wall in this decade um, and in these years because the situation is so dire. And, and you know, the rise in, in global fuels, and, and, and this is, we're at a pivotal point. So it makes perfect sense when they say, give us some time. Give us a chance to convert. You can't do this overnight. I get it. We don't have that time.
0: Uh, how do you get the world off of everything when you can't get the world off of coal?
7: Well, that's one of the problems. I think we probably can get the world off of coal, but also the inequality in the world is a big, big problem when you see it in you know, countries like South Africa, um, which is one of the bigger economies in Africa with all the problems they're having. Um, you know, getting them off coal is going to be very, very difficult. But it's a starting point. You know, Australia, I shouldn't pick on Australia. I used to live there. I like Australia. But um, it's amazing that some of these bigger countries are not able to transition out a little bit faster or a lot faster. So You know, we will see. And then, you know, with COP itself, we had fossil fuel agents that were there. I mean, you know, the the president of COP was the the Sultan al Jaber was, you know, know, the head of a, you know, oil conglomerate and things like that. And again, there's two ways of looking at it. If we've got this big problem, they should be at the table because we need them there to problem solve. The other is we're just giving into them. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. But, you know, we're coming towards the end of COP now, and the bottom line is, what are we going to do? The Americans have announced today, now, I find it slippery language, we're going to largely phase out, you know, fossil fuels. But the word largely is obviously a loophole. So, you know, a lot will be seen very soon.
0: Why are there a record amount of lobbyists, uh, fuel lobbyists, at uh, this convention?
7: Well, again, I'm going to try not to be too cynical here. There's two ways of looking at this. They're looking for contracts because there's a lot of transition going on. And a lot of people know that fossil fuels are going to be, you know, absolutely used over the next several years, whether they're transitional or not. And the other is we need them there for problem solving because those are the people doing it. So we need their commitments. Um, And again, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle point. I think it was a mistake uh, to have the CEO um, or or the president, as he's called. At one point, he he said that the science isn't solid in relation to fossil fuels and climate change. And you have an army of scientists from the entire world that say Mm -hmm. it is. So that was not a good start to any of this.
0: Uh, Do you think that this is more about that transitional period, that this discussion cannot be had on the extremes, that we've got to come together to find this solution?
7: Yeah, no, I do think it's a transitional period. Um, And, you know, look, in a lot of ways, like, let me be clear, a lot of good stuff has been done. When we look at the worst case scenarios that, you know, the sort of Netflix apocalyptic things, you know, where we're going to go over four degrees and the planet's just going to die. I mean that kind of a threat's pretty well off the table now because it, it's very, very unlikely that we're, we're going to walk right into a complete apocalypse. But are we going to meet one point five? We I, look here. You heard it here. But and I may be criticized for it. It's almost impossible now that we're going to meet one point five. Um, so we're really facing a serious, serious situation. Um, and, you know, at least they're meeting. But boy, the size of these conferences, they tend to turn into more of a trade show than anything else. Oh. But but let's hope there's some last minute good things that come from it.
0: Should we be considering providing the cleaner liquid natural gas that so many countries are asking for rather than watching them go back to coal?
7: Yeah, naturally, you know, I'm not an expert on all these things, so I, I'm going to speak cautiously here. And And nuclear is another option. But coal is definitely the biggest, biggest problem. Uh, There's no question with that. Um, But, uh, you know, natural gas may be an improvement. Certainly a lot of people are talking about nuclear. Nuclear comes with risks as well. But one of the ethically controversial elements is a loss fund for for lower income countries, because what Mm -hmm. is happening is the people, countries like ours that consume the most and do the most damage, um, we have the least effect from climate change, and and you know rising sea levels and and pe- countries in the global south with crop failures have the highest amount. So an ethical argument is that we would have a loss and damage fund, and it it looks like we probably will. How long will be contributed to, and how much we'll have to wait and see. But that is one of the things that has come out from this. But look, what comes out from this doesn't mean much if we don't act on it. And and what Canada tends to do is to talk big and have a lot of plans and then not follow through with them.
0: Are we having the same old discussion, Carrie? Is it time for a new focus?
7: You know, it's not entirely the same old discussion. I mean, if you roll it back five or eight years and you say, you know, we're going to talk about a complete phase out of fossil fuels... People would have said, no, 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 no. You'll never get people at the table to even have that conversation. Now, in fact, we are having a conversation. So, so that's really, really good. And look, a lot of progress has been made, but not enough progress in total to really bring things down. But but progress has been made. Um, you know, I I purposely repeat myself here, but but you know, if we had more global cooperation, but we're all yeah. You know, there's wars yeah. all over the world. We're at each other's throats. We don't agree ideologically. You know, we're, we're fighting with China. We're practically at war with Russia. Well, we aren't technically, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, these kinds of things are huge problems because the big long-term threat to us all is this.
0: Gary Bowman with us, Professor, School of the Environment, University of Toronto, talking about COP28. Gary, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You
7: too. Best wishes.
0: Uh, Liz Cheney, daughter of the former Vice President of the United States, is weighing in on a option of a third-party U.S. presidential run. As she says Donald Trump threatens democracy in the U.S. Let's bring in Jason Opel, Professor, Department of History and Classical Studies, McGill University, and here now. Jason, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Uh, talk a little bit about running as a third-party candidate. How does that work?
8: So. The rules for running uh, for President of the United States are remarkably unformed. like there's no there's no constitutional basis for this because the framers of the Constitution never thought that there would be parties, never envisioned party competition. So it's just a matter of what the political organizations that are around will allow for. And almost always in the last hundred and fifty years or actually always over the last hundred fifty years, that's been the Democrats and the Republicans. Third parties kind of come and go, um, as long as they get a sufficient number of um, people to sign on to support a candidate, uh, they can participate in in debates and sometimes have an effect. Um, Basically, in recent history um, and even distant history in the United States, third party candidates have mostly played spoiler roles, just to say they've moved votes away from one candidate or the other. Um, rather than being a serious contender for themselves. And I imagine that's going to be the case with um with Liz Cheney if she decided
0: to, to run. She says her reason for running is to keep Donald Trump out, that he is a threat to democracy. Does this help or hurt the cause, do you think?
8: Well, she definitely has a very strong platform to make that claim because she's a not just a Republican and a lifelong Republican, but a quite a very conservative Republican. Therefore, for her to have made such a strong and consistent stand against Donald Trump, which she has throughout her really throughout the last five years, and especially the last two years, you know she has a very strong foundation for saying that. Um, having said that, the, with the exception of the one thing that she floated, which is the possibility of a bipartisan ticket, that would be really interesting and new. But with laying that aside, if she does not do that interesting thing, it's a pretty narrow lane in the electorate that she could occupy because she's not going to get the support of many Republicans, the vast majority of whom support Trump or at least like Trump, nor is she going to get a lot of Democrats because she's a conservative Republican.
0: Is Biden sort of on the same plane in the sense that, you know, he's been quoted as saying recently, uh, one of the main reasons he's going again is to keep Donald Trump out. And if Donald Trump wasn't running, he's not sure he would be.
8: Well, I mean, so Biden definitely has, you know, there's, there's a pretty united front around everyone besides Trump and his supporters, that Trump is a unique and existential threat to the constitutional order of the United States of the kind that has existed since 1789. Um, and, you know, Biden has that, but Biden has a vastly larger electoral ground than Cheney because he has the great majority, although not all Democrats and a considerable number of you know, kind of moderate, independent. Um, you know, more apolitical voters. And of course, the question is, where will those voters in the kind of muddled middle break, um, especially in the five or so states that really do determine these elections?
0: Uh, What do Republicans think of Liz Cheney?
8: That's a very good question. There's two different kinds of Republicans uh, for our purposes here. One kind are those in the Senate and the other are everyone else. Um, In the Senate, she has a lot of respect among Republicans, even those Republicans who won't say that out loud um, because they're scared of Donald Trump or love Donald Trump. Uh, the more they're scared of him, uh, they won't say it, but they have a great deal of respect for her. And they show this in various ways. And Democrats, too, really do respect what she's done, you know, over the last two years relative to the um, attack on the Capitol. And so she has a you know, real you know, backing there. But among the overall Republican voters, you know, she has a very limited lane. 80 percent of them or so have a very positive view of Donald Trump. um, And she's basing her new political career opposing Donald Trump. So she doesn't have very much much to play with when it comes to Republican
0: voters. Uh, Does Donald Trump still have a grip on the Republican Party? And with his legal issues, could this all be a moot point?
8: He definitely has a grip on the Republican Party. There are You will find, I think, it's fair to say, wishful thinking among various media and figures and journalists. You will find lots of wishful thinking among a certain number of very, very wealthy Republican donors of a more conventional conservative type. That there's a real competition for the nomination and that Nikki Haley is "quote unquote" has momentum. I think that's all. You know, that's wishful thinking. It's, It's it's willfully ignorant of uh, the overwhelming evidence that Trump has an iron grip on the party um, at all levels, county, state, local, uh, you know, that's done. As for, you know, where this these things um, and in terms of legal issues, that is the big question because it's unclear how moderate centrist, you know, kind of less political voters will react when they see the almost certain Republican nominee, like in court, lots of time in court, um, for preliminary hearings and others on the four indictments and a total of 91 criminal uh, counts currently against Mr.
0: Trump. Jason Opel with us, Professor, Department of History, Classical Studies, McGill University, Liz Cheney weighing in on a third-party U.S. presidential run. Jason, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure.
5: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott
2: Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's top 900 CHML
0: federal Liberals have released their framework for emission caps for the oil and gas sector. Draft regulations are planned to be published uh, by the spring with regulations in place by 2025. Some are arguing that capping Canada's emission is a faulty plan that will only serve to hurt our economy without doing much for the environment. Let's bring in Renault Brassard, Senior Director, Communications with Montreal Economic Institute and here now. Renault, thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
5: I am, and thanks so much for having me
0: so we're constantly hearing about targets and they're usually targets that we don't meet uh is is there any different here any reason to be optimistic about this is it possible
5: honestly there's not there's not a lot to be optimistic about here uh look is it possible that ottawa reduces the amount of oil we produce in this country and eliminates thousands of jobs with it yeah that's that's certainly a possibility but in terms of cleaning our air that's unfortunately it's. Ottawa is sort of missing the mark with this, uh, simply because every single barrel of oil that we're not producing here is going to be happily produced by nations like Russia, Iran, or Mm -hmm. Venezuela that will be glad to get the money from it. They'll be glad to get the jobs and investment from it, uh, and they just won't have the same stringent environmental standards we do. Uh, So by capping oil and gas emissions here, what Ottawa is doing is is not so much helping the environment as exporting jobs and investments.
0: Are Canadians questioning these strategies now? Because it seems, you know, mean, like, like most, obviously Canadians want to help the environment. They want to do the right thing for the planet. But it seems anytime you mention the environment, we're just willing to hand over money, whether it's working or not.
5: You know, you're absolutely right that people want to help the environment. I think it's it's absolutely a laudable thing, the thing to do. But we need to make sure that those strategies work. And, and right now, what the federal liberals are proposing uh, is essentially to say, you know, we're going to stop producing as much oil here, which sounds great and, and all on paper, except that. Again, any supply that we don't uh, that we don't meet is not going to reduce demand worldwide. It's just going to be produced anywhere else. So again, the uh, the liberals with this are they're, they're giving a little bit more virtue sing- signaling again. I don't think it's what Canadians want when they say that we we need to do something about the environment. Uh, But unfortunately, this plan, again, is uh, it's just not something that's going to lead to a better, cleaner environment. Uh, Canada uh,
0: expels about one point five percent of world's greenhouse gases. If we get that down to one percent, are we going to save the planet or are we better to help in other ways?
5: The thing is uh, greenhouse gas emissions don't need a passport to cross borders. Uh, as everything we do if we want uh, to help our planet needs to come from a global perspective. Yeah, And there's a lot of things that we can do out here in Canada that could help. One of the things we can do is probably export more liquefied natural gas to mm-hmm. help shut down some coal plants in places like India and China. This is something that would have a much bigger direct environmental impact. And it's true, it would slightly increase the emissions stemming from Canada. But from a global standpoint, every single coal power plant that you, re- that you replace with a natural gas power plant is a huge victory for the climate.
0: I've been trying to bring this up as much as I possibly can, and it just seems that nobody is listening to this. And, and, you know, my famous phrase that I'm using all the time on this show is, how do we get the world off everything if we can't get the world off of coal? Should we not be focusing on one thing, then the next, then the next in order to get this done?
5: I think you're right. I think the other answer is innovation. You know, there's, there's a lot of very promising technologies. One of them being carbon capture and underground storage, where essentially we're sucking carbon emissions out of the air or making sure that whatever gets burned that would, uh, create some carbon emissions cannot get to the atmosphere, but get rather get stored underground where it cannot affect our climate. Uh, these are very innovative ways to do, to do things, but at least they're getting the job done. They're one of the best ways we have reduce emissions from large industrial processes. And on that, I have to hand it to the Liberals. That's one thing where uh, you know they, they've talked about it. They've talked about it maybe for a little bit too long, but recently they announced uh, some tax credits to help spur those investments. So at least there's some step in the right direction with that, uh, unlike we- this plan that they announced today.
0: And any, any, any energy expert I've talked to said this is a, you know, this is a multi-prong approach. There's not one thing that's going to solve this issue. Yet we seem to be having these discussions on either extreme. Is there, are, are we slowly moving to the center and a solution on this where we're all rowing in the same direction? Because it seems to be hysteria on either extreme and, and no solution.
5: You know, I'm a little bit of an optimist, uh, and I think we are moving towards the right direction, the the right solution. But you know, we're we're sort of like stumbling in the dark, but progressively to getting towards the right solution. Uh, so stuff like the carbon capture tax credit is certainly a uh, step in the right direction. There's also been some very good industry efforts, and I think it's something that hasn't been mentioned enough. But you know, like the the emissions the uh, emissions intensity of every barrel of oil we produce today is 33 percent lower than it was in 1990. We hmm. something to celebrate, and it's it looks like things are are are, are getting greener and greener from the industry side. Uh, from the industry side, so there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I guess today's plan is just not one of them, unfortunately. But there's there's a lot of other things happening that are actually making a meaningful impact, a meaningful difference.
0: Is there a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas?
5: Oh, absolutely, there is. Uh, and you don't have to listen to me only to say that uh, you know the uh, the Germans were interested in uh, in Canadian liquefied natural gas when they were looking to uh, replace Russia, uh, Japan, China, a lot of countries uh, in Asia are also interested in Canadian liquefied natural gas. Uh, because they know that we are a reliable trading partner that we can get the, that if we can get the, the products to tide Water, the moment we can get them there, we can get them to those other markets that need it. And unlike places like Russia, Iran or Venezuela, we just don't have the same uh, abysmal human rights uh, and uh mm lack of respect for democracy uh, that, that, that these guys have, unfortunately.
0: Renal Brassard with us, Senior Director, Communications, Montreal Economic Institute, and talking about uh, emission caps and everything to make the planet greener. Are we rowing in the right direction? Renal, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
5: Well, thanks. You as well. It was a pleasure.
0: I love her, uh, I love having Eric Thomas on the show, uh, fellow Motorhead, and uh, he's been covering it for a bazillion years on the Raceline Radio Network. The show you hear every Sunday, right here on CHML. Well, we all got a note this week that the legendary Eric Thomas is hanging it up and at the end of the month. He is retiring, and uh, you know, first once the tears stop, I, what are you doing? And then, then we all realize how old we're all getting and the rest is history as they say eric thanks for the time hope you're well
1: oh always good to be on with you scooter and you're you're so kind to bring me on to to talk about this yeah it's it's time i'll be uh 71 years young uh in january (laughs) i've been in i've been in the broad yeah i'll I'll be in the broadcasting game 48 years almost 50 31 of those with raceline it's time to uh put it up on the trailer and, uh, you know, take all the fuel out of it and let someone go for it. If indeed, I'm trying to use all the racing vernacular and, and cliches I can think of. But, I, you know, so I can get out and at least do some traveling and get away from being stapled to the to the thing on Sundays while I'm still able to walk and enjoy and get around. And, I mean, I, I'm a gearhead first and foremost, like you said, off the top. You're still going to see me around the racetrack. You're not going to get rid of me. That easy. The only difference is it won't be carrying a tape recorder around together. Now,
0: yeah, but. and people just don't realize what needs to go on behind the scenes in order for you to get that show going. I remember we were trying to hook up at the Toronto Indy, and you were like so busy doing so many different yeah. things. It, it just you know you forget about how much structure is involved in all of this. Has any of this sunk in yet?
1: Yeah, it has. I mean, uh, I, w- I was just doing some interviews with uh, with Dave Roberts, who writes for Area Auto Racing News up and down the Eastern Seaboard, and he says, is there going to be a time in the spring when all the local Tracks open up, but you're going to think it was a mistake. No, I've I've given a lot of thought. I can I can afford to retire, and I, I've got my, my my little space in the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame. And I've had uh, I just want to thank everybody who out there who took the time to send a nice note of congratulations, and re, you know, and remembering back to when it all started. I've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people you know send those notes, in and thank you very very much. And before I forget, and before we run out of time. You guys, at 900 CHML have been fantastic. It was a an idea of Jeff Stories and, and Rick Zamprin to say, listen, don't be driving into Toronto every Sunday. Why don't you come on down here, halfway from Niagara uh, to Toronto, and do the show out of our studios at, at CHML, utilizing your your operators, your engineers, the traffic department, you know, guys like you and Rick and other people in other day parts who you know come on in and say, Eric, come on and talk about this story with racing. You understood the sport. You understood where. It's important. his importance was in the grand scheme of things in the sports in this area. And uh, I couldn't have done it without you guys. You guys have been stellar. And uh, one of the great memories I'll have is how fantastic CHML was with the program. And I'm, I'm going to miss I'm going to miss that part of it probably a lot.
0: So I remember back in the day, and you were a, uh, a rockin' uh, sports guy on the Tom River Show on 680 CFTR. Yep. You and Evelyn Mako, you're hammering out the hits, and every so often... <laughs> yeah, let me get that. Every so often, okay. uh, he'd call you in to record a bit. You guys would do your character voices, and then you disappeared yeah. back into the newsroom. And by the, song end, by the time the song ended, there was a, a comedy bit on the radio that everybody was laughing to. Uh, yeah. So how did you get from there? to Raceline Radio. How, how did this well, all get started?
1: Well, it, it all started back when when I was seven years old, and my dad took me to Merrittville Speedway as a as a kid, just something to do on a on a Saturday night, and I was uh, hopelessly bitten by the sport from that point forward, and it, it basically carried on, and my whole family grew up at the track. Miss Janice, her family-owned Merrittville and Ransomville in the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s. She grew up at the Speedway. I basically grew up at, at, at Merrittville, and my daughter Caitlin was involved with the scoring system at those tracks for, you know, a long, long time as well. So it kind of went from doing regular sports. Of course, I have a history with play-by-play hockey as well, at the junior level and the, the NHL level as well. You know, same kind of thing. You're describing fast-moving objects with numbers on them. So there's a great, <laughs> a great parallel there. So I just, I did the sports and the regular stuff at TR and the voices and what have you, did some jocking along the way, but I did some play-by-play hockey, did a lot of track announcing and then it, when the Indy in Toronto hit in 1986, uh, uh, I did the track PA there uh, for until 92 when Raceline was born because we had launched a series on TSN, Raceline Motorsport Television. Scott, you may remember that, where mm. we were televising events, Canadian events uh, that normally don't get any television play. And, and we decided, okay, we'll do that for a while. That was very successful. I've always wanted to do a companion radio program because up to that point, there wasn't any race results that you were going to get on the radio or television. It was only what you saw on ABCY Rule of Sports, and you had to wait for the you know the papers and the publications to come out, like National Dragster or, or or Wheel Spin News, to figure out who the hell won uh, you know in another speedway in some other part of the country that you're trying to follow. We wanted to change that. We wanted to come on on a Sunday night and tell you who won the NASCAR race, who won the IndyCar race, who won the Formula One race, but then me, who, who won at Flamborough, who won at Merrickville, who won at Tuyuga Speedway, who won at, at the drag strip at Tyuga Dragway Park. You know, we wanted to change that whole thing, and then it became national, and 31 years later, thanks to, you know, our, our, our lovely sponsors like Subaru, who've been with us all 31 years, and General Tire and the other companies that have been with us all along the years, this thing lasted 31 years, and you know, it's it's been a uh, it's a terrible cliche, but it's a labor of love. Had to be a fan first. You know, you say I'm a gearhead, you got to be but you got to mm. love the sport and you, and you love talking to the athletes and it's a lot of work, but it didn't seem like a lot of work because I like the sport so much.
0: Um most memorable moment or interview. And I'm guessing the most memorable a memorable moment being inducted into the Canadian Motorsports Hall of Fame, but I'm uh, that's my uh-huh. that's me talking. What what are your thoughts?
1: No, no, you're right along the parallel, but to make it even sweeter is the fact that after I had been inducted into the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame, Mario Andretti, who was the guest speaker at that Mm. particular induction, came over to me and congratulated me on being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And having access to Mario Andretti, the winningest driver of our era, with the F1 championship, IndyCar championship, Indy 500, when he even won a Daytona 500, uh, the winningest driver of my generation, I had regular access to that guy. So it would be akin to, and I've described this before, if you're doing a baseball show on the radio and you had access to, oh, name them, Babe Ruth, yeah. uh, Mickey Mandel, Roger Maris, Ted Williams, it was to have the winningest driver of my era on the show with us on a fairly regular basis, and his son, Michael, as well, seven-time winner in Toronto, to have access to that guy was indeed the highlight of all 31 years of this program. And we interviewed all the stars, you know, the, it, of all the pursuits, Canadian, American, international, it didn't really matter. But the fact of the matter was you know, having Mario on the show was just so unbelievable. Then to have him, after I'm inducted into the Hall of Fame, come over and say, Eric, you absolutely deserve that. And, uh, you have a fantastic career from what I've seen there. And you really, so <laughs> I uh, deserve that, and I just wanted to come over and congratulate you on that. And I thought, okay, I can uh, even do his voice maybe, but to have him <laughs> congratulate me is something I'll never ever forget.
0: Your wife's going to go nuts listening to all this around the breakfast table. You know <laughs> that, don't you?
1: Oh, she's she's already crazy from it. So I can't do much more. Damage.
0: <laughs> so what? Do you, are you, are you going to like just uh, go out and watch the grass grow or are you going to do yeah. something that's less demanding? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe. like it's like, you know, you're 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 in your 71st year. It's like it's not like you don't deserve this. But, you know, I, I'm just like I'm hanging on to your coattail there.
1: I hear you, buddy. No, no. I I, I think initially until maybe the spring, I'll just, you know, take some time off and you know, we're going to do a little bit of traveling here and there and going to go away for Christmas for the first time ever and just relax and kind of get away from it and get away from the, uh, the regular routine. Because our show was, we, was, was year-round because we do yeah. best ofs over Christmas and New Year's, as you know and the shows are carried on CHML, you know, just a chance to get away and look a little bit. Come the spring, we'll see. There may be some room to do some part-time work within the business or maybe even some, you know, some local radio. I don't want to do Monday through Friday anymore. I'm tired, basically. But, I mean, I'm also a musician, and I also want to pursue doing the music thing. I have been in bands before, you know, and I want to do, you know, just do something, you know, a couple couple of nights a, a month, you know, and do get back into the music thing. I did that a little while ago. I proved to myself at the age of 69, 70, but I could still do that. And, and that was kind of <laughs> gratifying too. So I've got a lot of things on the, on the go here and uh, keep the grass cut on a more regular basis and not blame having to go to a racetrack somewhere because they didn't cut the grass. Anyway, Eric. just getting out and enjoying it and enjoying the family and, Getting away from the, from the, the regular dru- I'm still going to, you know, drudgery. I call drudgery. Did I just do that? No. But, you know, you know what I mean, though, Scott? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just, absolutely. Just get away from the regular routine yep. of it because I've been doing that for the last 31 years and close to 50 in the broadcasting game.
0: It's well, time. Eric, we are going to miss you uh, listening to you on Raceline Radio on a regular basis, but I know we'll be bugging you to come back on uh, as often as we can in order to uh, get your expertise, commentary on everything that uh, goes round and round. But it's been an absolute thrill over the years having you on and, of course, uh, being a part of uh, the show with CHML and you guys doing it here and such. Uh, so best of luck to you, and hopefully we'll chat again very soon, and hopefully I'm going to squeeze you in one more time before the end of the year.
1: Uh, look forward to that. Scooter, you've been fantastic. You and I are our, our gear heads, and this one got to do another trip over to Ransomville. Go to yes, Wink says that's what it's all about. Baby. That's, right. that's what it's all about, right? We're going to do that. And listen, you're kind. You're, you're one of the good guys, Scooter, and uh, always enjoy being on with you. We'll talk to you again soon.
0: Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. You've got an interesting guest coming up and an interesting segment. Uh, Brock University professor mm. uh, and a woke class telling him what to say. This is going to be interesting.
9: Well, this all stems in, and I, did you see any of the clips of the congressional hearing from the states this week with the Ivy League uh, presidents? No. So the president of Harvard and MIT and Penn were brought, were summoned to this congressional hearing because there were all these complaints and reports of anti-Semitic things, people chanting for genocide against Israel on campus. And so they were called to say like, what are you doing about this on your campus. And is this against your code of conduct? And the amazing thing was they couldn't answer that question. And if you go online, it's it like Penn, apparently I read something today that as a result of the answers that the Penn university president gave, they've lost a hundred million dollars in pledged donations from alumni already oh this my. week. They, w- when the question was asked, is this against your policies to, an, to say, we want genocide against Israel they said, well, depends on the context. And and the congresswoman was like, sorry, what's the context? And the, well, did it lead to action? And so she says, so so you're saying that if you say this, but it doesn't actually lead to a genocide, it's fine. If that person doesn't commit a genocide, I mean, it was, they couldn't somehow bring themselves to say, no, this is not acceptable. And, you know, Scott, one of the reasons that I wanted to have this, uh, this Brock professor on who's written this piece in the national post today is, do you you tell me, Scott, you tell me this, you you can have people marching on campus, calling for intifada or whatever else. What do you think the response would be from any Canadian or American university, if somebody, one person stood on campus and said, I am calling for the death of all African-Americans, you know, exactly what would happen. You know, and, and so it should. But you know exactly what would happen. And so this is the question is, wh- wh- have universities now essentially put themselves in a position where they're either showing themselves to be something they probably don't want people to think they are, or they've painted themselves in a corner where now they have to let everything go? Because if you don't next time, even though it's offensive, how do you possibly – say, well, we're being consistent. Like it's, it's just, it's such a, this has exposed something, Scott, these last two months uh, today, Hmm. two months exactly have exposed something and it's become a very, it's, it's, it's a bad situation, but it's also a very complicated situation that now there's a lot of people who have taken a lot of positions that under any other circumstance, they don't agree with that position, but how do they go back on their position now for, for people who have said, well, you know, uh, you know, we don't necessarily have all the details of these reports of rape. Many of these are the same people who we believe women. As soon as you say it, me too, we believe like, how do you possibly take both those positions at the same time? It's it's a it's a weird, troubling, screwed up situation.
0: And, you know, it's amazing how this has turned into Palestinians versus Israelis or one religion versus another or the left versus the right. And for me, it's freedom and democracy versus the opposite. Whether that's uh, authoritarianism, terrorism, whatever. And for me, it's not about those two segments or those two uh, ethnic uh, uh, groups. It's about freedom or not. Mm. and And we don't seem to be separating Palestinians from Hamas. and And
9: I'm not sure why that discussion is not being had. Well, we I agree with you. We were very clear, most people, I think, were very quick and very clear after 9-11 to separate Muslims and Saudi Arabians from the people who took those planes into the towers. Yeah. And, just yeah. the, and, and rightly so. Yeah. That was not a reflection of everybody. And so you said, no, they were terrorists. Those are bad people. They are terrorists. They are not representative of everybody from the country or religion that they are from. And so, yes, in, in this particular case though, somehow uh, Hamas, it's, it's getting convoluted. It's getting, it's, yeah. now part of it, it is a little more complicated only because Hamas at one time was elected by yeah. the Palestinians, but I still don't think that means all Palestinians are saying we're in favor of what happened. I don't believe that.
0: Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. should be an interesting show. Scott, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well.
9: Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast.
0: You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer
9: to have the last word this text is uh from mike from burlington i just want to take this thursday to remind everyone to be more positive and more of an annoying neighbor listen to your favorite music set off fireworks from your backyard (laughs) shovel snow off your driveway and onto the neighbor's driveway because as the world gets darker there's still hope to be the annoying neighbor merry christmas